this may seem like a really small thing, and I uh, certainly know, I don't intend for it to seem or to feel or to sound like a really shallow thing. I don't want it to come across this way. Um, maybe it just indicates to you where, where my heart, I mean, what, uh, this is not the worst thing in the world, but most of you know that I really love, I really love singing. I mean, sorry, maybe not all of you know that. Most, I do, I really love singing. Start that again. Most of you know I really don't do that that well. I don't sing that well. Um, so, Ruby, that's just, I, that, I don't know, that's really uh, special to me, just for the, I don't know, it's just a small thing, but it's just, I, uh, I look forward to when I'll be able to sing perfectly for Jesus. I'd invite you this morning to open your Bibles to the book of Acts. We're going to continue. We kind of dropped off in the middle of uh, chapter 24, and we're in the middle of the story of Paul being kept in custody, and he's being tried, so to speak. Uh, well, he's really kind of is on trial there, but he's, uh, uh, you kind of get the sense, and we're going to get maybe even more the sense uh, this morning, you get the sense that uh, uh, he's really kind of a pawn in the middle of some other scheme, and I would, I would tell you that, that largely that's even correct. He is a pawn in some other scheme. While we may be tempted to think that he's a pawn in the schemes of men, that's actually not really true, though. He's a pawn, uh, and this may come across weirdly, but in the schemes of God and what God wants to do, and I think we should continue to see it that way. Paul, as you remember, was, uh, uh, was taken by the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem. They were going to kill him, except for the, uh, for the tribune, for Claudius Lysus, who stepped in and saved him. And as he tried to determine what to do with Paul, this is... Uh, kind of tracking back over 22 and 23 real, real quickly here. He's trying to determine what to do with him, why he's even being uh, held, what the, why they're trying to kill him because they make a plot that they're going to kill him no matter what. And he can't figure it out, and so he kind of bumps him up the chain, takes him out of harm's way, and moves him to the city of Caesarea, which is on the coastline. And there uh, we found out that Felix, who is the, the regional governor there, he's the governor of, of that area, he's uh, waiting to hear from Saul, uh, Paul's accusers, and his accusers come. Last week we, we covered this text. They accuse him of everything they can think of that will hopefully get him in trouble with Felix. They say this guy's an insurrectionist. He's causing all kinds of problems. He's stirring people up. He even tried to defile the temple. And uh, Paul, of course, gives him a nice reason, defense against that, and says, listen, they found me in the temple. I've only been there 12 days. I came to worship. It's been a long time since I've been here. I finally brought some tithes back. And in fact, there was no crowd in the temple, in the synagogues, or anywhere in the city. So their charges cannot be proved. We pick that up today in verse 22 of chapter 24. We're going to have just a, a short section today. Uh, chapter 24, verse 22. Follow along as I read the text that we're going to study today. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, it says in verse 24, after some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul, so he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. 
And we're going to stop there for today. Father, it's your word. I know we've already prayed, but it never hurts. Uh, I want to just very specifically come to you again this morning and ask you to illuminate your word to our minds and to our hearts. Again, I make the same request I make most every Sunday, God. We want to learn as it is. We want to learn the historical uh, truths, the historical events, the happenings, the facts behind this text, that it may help us understand your word better. But we also want to learn beyond that, be sort of on top of that. that doesn't, that's not the only thing we want to learn. We want to learn who you are and who we are and what you want to do in us and through us and for us from your word this morning to you. I'm so confident in your, the ability of your word to speak, to divide. In fact, this is what it says about itself, to divide, to pierce deeply, to separate even what we might think is inseparable in us. I love that because we sometimes have these things in our lives, God, these bondages in our lives, these, these events, these happen. We just heard about one this morning when Lana shared. We have these things in our lives we think could never be separated. We could never get away from that. And yet your word has the ability to get in between those things and separate that which we think is inseparable for the glory of your name. To remove, we sang this song this morning, remove all the darkness, the earthly within us that we may be prepared and fitted for the day that is coming. God, all of this we ask for in Jesus' name. Amen. So here we are. They've made their case, right? We think they're going to come to a conclusion. By the way, I want to remind you, it began actually not with the first or the prosecution's case. It began with a letter from, from the tribune, from, from uh, uh, Claudius Lysias. He sent a letter and said, this is why Paul is being sent to you from what I can figure out. This is what I've seen since, I, since he's been taken captive. So he has a letter, and then the accusers come, and they make their case. And then Paul speaks and defends himself. But Felix, instead of saying, well, here's my decision, he puts them off. Now, we begin with a little phrase that says, Felix had a rather accurate way. In other words, he knew where all this was. We get a glimpse now why Paul said last week, remember he said, when he began his defense, he said, Felix, I cheerfully make my defense before you, for you know, you've been governor over here for a number of years. You know what this is about. You know what we're like. You know what the Jews are like. You know what the way is about. You know what Christianity is about. I cheerfully make my defense. Now, as it were, he knew that uh, Felix knew about it, but Felix chose not to do anything about it right away. He says, well, I'm going to put you off. He says, well, when Lysias comes, I'll just finish the verse up there. When Lysias comes, then I will decide your case. Now, he already has a letter from Lysias, right? There's no indication in the text, by the way. Oh, let, me, let me just finish that. There's no indication but in the text that the tribune was even going to come, that there's an intention to have him come back and tell his side of the things. Now, that doesn't mean it didn't happen. I mean, there's obviously things that happen that aren't included in the text, right? So it's possible that the tribune did come again. It's possible that Felix did send for him and say, hey, we need to know. I need to have you in person to speak about this. I, we don't know. One, it doesn't tell us whether it was ever the intention. Two, it doesn't tell us if it, if it ever happened or not. I think we can get a sense, however, as we read the text, that even beyond just saying, well, we don't know how this worked out. It was kind of kept in limbo. Maybe Claudius Lysus never came. That's why I don't think we get that sense at all. Because I think we get a sense that Felix has a pretty accurate idea whether Paul is innocent or guilty. Right? How do we know that? Well, look at the very next line. Look at the very next line of text. He says to his, his centurion there, he says, hey, I want you to keep Paul in custody. 
He's supposed to, he can't just leave. But look at what he says. He says, I want you to give him some rest. That's literally the phrase used. I want you to give him some rest. Let him be at ease. I don't know what you picture when you think of Paul being imprisoned. This picture that's being painted here is probably not what most of us think when we think of being at ease, right? I mean, we think of him being in custody, being at ease. And I don't know. I'm sure he didn't, could just, couldn't just go anywhere. It's possible he was chained to a centurion. But it's also very clear that he was not cut off from the people he knew, that people were free to come and travel. People were free to come and take care of his needs. People were free to help him out. Whatever the case may be, it even indicates a bit that he should be able to, to move about himself. By the way, can I, just, can I just jog your memory back? I think it's really good for us to, have a, uh, to dig in details of Scripture, but also to maintain the high level of Scripture so we, so we keep, keep things honest, so to speak. But just, just let your mind travel back a couple of chapters in the book of Acts. This time Paul is on his way to, to Jerusalem, and he stops, he gets off the boat in a city, which is Caesarea. It's the same city he's in right now. And he goes to a man named Philip, who is one of the seven, the scripture tells us, and he stays in his house, and his daughters, Philip's daughters, help take care of him, and his friends come, and there's a time where the, he's refreshed, and they take care of him. It's, by the way, the scene where this guy named Agabus comes and takes Paul's belt, right, and, and ties up uh, his own hands and says, just the owner of this belt, just like I'm tied up, the owner of this belt, that's how he's... But now, so, so get the parallel that we're, get the overlay we're getting here, right? Paul is on his inbound journey to Jerusalem. And then he goes to Jerusalem. All the stuff happens we just read about. He comes back out. He's, he's now being held in custody. Who do you think is coming to take care of Paul? Who are the friends? Who are the friends that are not being prevented from taking care of Paul's needs? I submit to you, it's the very same friends that sat with him in that house or in that city just probably a couple of weeks before that. And they wept. They wept and they said, Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. It's not going to end well. Don't go. And now what situation they find themselves in? Here he is. He's not free to move about. He's now under the command of the Romans. And they're taking care of his needs. Just like they did a couple weeks before, but in an entirely different situation. Doesn't it seem maddening to you, by the way? Maybe you're not like this. But to me, it seems maddening that there's a really big indication already in the text so far. By the way, if you've read the rest of the book of Acts, you know that there's even bigger indication coming. I mean, they just flat out say it. But it seems maddening that there's this indication that they think Paul is innocent. And yet they won't release him. They won't let him go. In fact, today, for us, we probably would use this word that we often hear, that I often hear from my children. But to be honest, I often think of it myself. It's unfair, right? It's not fair. They know he's innocent. Now, by the way, we should probably see that there's a bit of protection going on, whether they're intending it for this or not. There's a bit of protection going on. What do you think would happen if Paul would be released and just let go? Do you remember those guys that had said we're not going to eat or drink until Paul dies? My guess is they would try to make good on that. Now, we often understand that God is sovereign, right? So God knows what's happening. God would have been able to, to take care of whatever the situation. But it seems maddening. But before we go any further, I mean, before we go on down with that track, let's sort of jump to the next verse because the next verse illuminates some things that are happening here. Another reason we might say why Paul is being kept in custody. Not the reason Felix might think or anyone else might think, but a reason that God would have. 
It says, after some days, Felix comes with his wife named Drusilla, and his wife is Jewish. Now, we're going to track in a little bit. I'm going to show you a graphic that gets more specific about where Drusilla comes from. But his wife was Jewish, and he comes with his wife, and he wants to sit and have Paul come, and he wants to have Paul defend himself, not why he's in chains now, but Paul defend his faith. He wants to hear Paul speak about his faith in Christ Jesus. Now, if you know anything about Paul, you know that he says, yes. That's exactly what I want to do. That's exactly what I want to do. In fact, Paul's going to use these words in a couple of chapters from now when he's standing in front of, uh, not Felix, but in front of Festus and in front of King Agrippa. He's going to use these words in Acts chapter 26, verse 22, and then 23. He says there, and he's reflecting back to what's happening to him now. He says, to this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here and I testify. I speak. I give witness to both small and great. Now, that's referring to people. Small and great. That's not referring to their size. That's referring to their stature. From the lowliest in whatever town I might have gone through to the highest, which I'm standing in front of right now. Think of what's happening. Think of what he's saying. Here is the governor of this area of Syria, of Palestine. And he gets to stand in front of him. And he is voluntarily bringing his wife into Paul's company and saying, would you tell me about Jesus? I can testify to those who are both small and great, and I say nothing. I don't say anything except what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. Let me finish that, because here's what they said would come to pass. That the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Paul is, you know, this is exactly what he said to the Philippians, by the way, when he wrote the letter to the Philippians. He said, you are wringing your hands and saying, how can this be that I'm in chains? I'm telling you, it's for the glory of God that I'm in chains. It's so that the gospel can advance. It's so that the light might be shed in places it will never get to be shed otherwise. I submit to you and I, by the way, we are so quick when things are unfair, when things don't go the way we want them to go. We are so quick to grumble and to feel sorry for ourselves and to think we got stuck by some chance in this worst circumstance. And I would tell you, God doesn't have things like chance. Perhaps he wants the light of the gospel to shine in a place that would not shine otherwise. The problem is we're too busy usually grumbling about how awful we have it. Oh, boy, now that just goes, I'm so guilty of that. I'm so guilty of that. Paul's like, this is not a disadvantage to me. This is an advantage. Look, I've gone everywhere, and I get to testify from the lowest of people to the kings. And I get to tell them what the Bible says about who Jesus was going to be. He was going to suffer, but he was going to be the first to come back from the dead. And because of that, the light of the gospel is going to be shared, not just with Jewish people, but with everybody. With everybody. Remember he told Felix just before that, it is with respect to the resurrection that I'm here today. You see, he probably took that, Felix took that as meaning, it's because I talked about the resurrection, that's why I'm in the chains. And Paul says, oh, that's true too. But it's because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ that I'm willing to do anything and everything to let people know about who Jesus is. That's why I'm here today. You see, he meant it totally on a different level than what Felix took it probably. Right? I mean, Felix, let me say that again to make sure you get that. Felix probably thought when he said that line, it's because of the resurrection of the dead that I'm in chains, that he's saying, well, it's because you opened your mouth when you shouldn't have been. Now look what happened to you. And Paul says, yeah, yeah, I mean, that's true, but that's not it at all. It's because of Jesus' resurrection that I'm willing to have anything be done to me so that you might know. 
you see how that's completely different, right? It is because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ that I'm in chains, that I'm a prisoner. The other week I used that phrase to challenge us. Do you see yourself as a prisoner of the Lord? And you could say the same thing, by the way. It is because of the resurrection of Jesus that I'm a prisoner. That's why I will follow Jesus no matter what. Because he came back from the dead, right? What can stop him? I, I mean, you didn't seem very convinced. What can stop him? What can, nothing, right? Don't you want to align yourself with the one for whom nothing is impossible? It's with respect to that. That's why I'm in chains. Now, Paul had this audience, and he begins to speak to Felix and to Drusilla, and it says, as he reasoned with them, as he thought through, as he inspected, and just sort of laid out the case, but he just laid it out for them. Very, very, you know how Paul works, right? We've been studying very systematically, very right to the point, very succinctly, right spot on, as he laid it out to them, and he laid some specific things out about righteousness, and about self-control, and about the coming judgment. It says that Felix began to be alarmed. He began to tremble, is actually what that word means. He began to, to shake with fear. Now, Paul is being very specific about this, by the way. He's not just saying, oh, let's see, what could I talk to you today about? He knows some things about Felix. And he says, let's talk about righteousness. Let's talk about being right. You see, Felix didn't, didn't rule very justly. Remember last week when they were laying it on thick? Oh, great Felix, you've done such great things for our nation. We're so happy to... No, 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 no. Felix didn't reign very justly. In fact... The, um, the historian Tacitus would say about Felix that he fulfilled every lust he wanted himself and by whatever means he could get it. You see why Paul began to talk about the next one. Let's talk about self-control, Felix. Let's talk about self-control. Let's talk about being right with God and being in control of yourself. And then let's talk about the coming judgment where one day you will stand before the God of heaven and earth, the maker of everything, the one by, through whom everything was made, the one who will judge everything with finality, the one who is perfect, there's, no, there's nothing. Let's talk about that one day you'll stand in front of him and give an answer for what you have been doing. Now you may be getting a glimpse, beginning to see why Felix began to be alarmed, <laughs> to say, oh, maybe let's not talk about this anymore. But if you want a little further detail, now, I'm just going to give you a full disclaimer. It's one of the few times I do this. If you are really bored by, you know, getting into finite details of things, you can just kind of shut your brain off for a little bit. You don't have to listen to the next part. If you get excited about why Felix might really be getting alarmed, you can pay attention. I gave you a family tree. It's a partial family tree of a guy named Herod the Great. Now, we know about Herod the Great because he's in Scripture, and he has many more wives, and he has many more children. Now, if you notice on the left-hand side of your screen up top there, there's this guy named Aristobulus. He is the uh, father of Agrippa, who is the father of Drusilla. We're going to get there, so I'm just going to trace that down. But Aristobulus actually died at a pretty young age. The reason he died was because his father had him put to death. I'll go ahead and make a line through his name so you know that he's dead now. His father had him put to death because he was threatened by him. If you know anything about Herod the Great, that happened a lot. He killed quite a few of his sons. He killed quite a few other people as well. Kind of like every baby two years and younger. That kind of Herod guy. That's who we're talking about. He didn't like anyone who might potentially take away his position. Now, Aristobulus, before he died, before he was killed, I should say, had two children. One was Herod Agrippa, 
and one was Herodias. Let's talk about this Herodias for a little bit before we go down, down to Jerusalem. Herodias is his daughter who got married to one of Herod the Great's other sons named Philip. But after a while, after being married to Philip, one of Herod's other sons named Herod Antipas, I know it gets really confusing, but one of his other sons stole her away or wooed her away from Philip. Now this, by the way, if you're tracking back, this is in the Gospels when we read about John the Baptist, and he accused Herod Antipas. By the way, Herod Antipas is the one you're going to read about most of the time in the Gospels. He's the one that came and said, you have your brother's wife. Now, by the way, just if you're thinking through this and want to know why Felix is going to end up being alarmed, I mean, look who she is. He is married. I mean, it is to his brother's wife, which would be his sister-in-law, right? He's also married to his brother's daughter, which would be his niece, right? So things get a little complicated here, right? Well, let's focus back on Herodias' brother, actually, because this is the line we're going to trace. This is Agrippa, King Agrippa. When you read about uh, uh, King Agrippa in the book of Acts, most times it's going to be this guy right here. He had uh, three children, Agrippa II, Bernice, and Drusilla, who Drusilla is the one we're talking about right now. Drusilla's in the text this morning. Try to stay with me here. Agrippa, by the way, also died. We read about this in the book of Acts. But before he died, he had arranged a marriage between Drusilla and another king. The deal was, because there was some Jewish blood, Agrippa, King Agrippa, the first wife was Jewish, the deal was that you can get married to him if he becomes Jewish. But Agrippa died. We read about this in the book of Acts, back in chapter 12. Anybody know what happened to Agrippa the first? It's a fantastic little story tucked away there. Well, first of all, he kills James. Then he imprisons Peter. But Peter gets out miraculously. That's Acts chapter 12. At the very end of Acts chapter 12, we find out what happened to Herod, Agrippa the first. He dies. Anybody know how? Yeah, somebody said it. A couple people said it. He was eaten by worms. Remember the, the scene? He, there's a little beef between him and Tyre and Sidon, and he, they want to gain favor, so they come, and he goes out to make his great speech, and they're like, oh, yeah. And when he's talking, it's the voice of God, not man. And Herod Agrippa I is kind of up there like, yeah, uh-huh. And it says at that moment, he fell down and died, and he was eaten by worms. He had worms on the inside, and they ate him. He died. One of those sort of just like little snippets struck away into in scripture. So after he dies, his son Agrippa II becomes king. So in the story we're, gonna, we're about to read, the next couple chapters, when you read King Agrippa, that's the one we're talking about, Herod the, Agrippa II. And he takes charge of his two sisters, and they live with him, and Drusilla doesn't really like to be around there, and Herod Agrippa II arranges another marriage for him with another guy who's going to become king, and he agrees to become circumcised so they get married. Now enter, now he's not on this, on this graph at all, but enter Felix. This is the guy we're talking about in the text this morning. Enter Felix. Now history tells us that Drusilla was very beautiful. History also tells us that her sister Bernice hated her because of that and treated her shamefully. And they lived there with Agrippa and Bernice after she was married. So she wanted to get away from that situation. And when Felix came and saw her, he also wanted to be with her. Remember, Tacitus says about him that he will fulfill every lust he has no matter how he can. And so he takes her away, woos her, I don't, doesn't, I don't know exactly how he did it, but he woos her away from this other guy. I, I can't even remember his name, I'm sorry, I should have gotten that for you. So Felix and Drusilla get married. That's the situation we have here. That's who's coming. Which, by the way, just to kind of set this in context, if you're feeling really badly about Drusilla or thinking she's some kind of, uh, you know, putting blame on her, uh, uh, Josephus says that Drusilla was probably about 16 years old when Paul was here in this text, Paul was in custody and they came to visit. So she was, had already been married and was, had her second husband already. 
and she was 16 years old and was in front of, with an audience with Paul here. I would suggest you'd be right in thinking that Felix was quite a bit older than that. Not 16. By the way, a little aside, we're going to get to this down the road. So while I have this graphic up here, notice, I don't know if you can read this, but uh, the very bottom there it says that uh, Bernice is often treated as the wife of Agrippa II. So like in a couple of chapters, if you know where, where we're going to go in the text here, just a little note to tuck away back here for a couple weeks from now when we're going to get there. Paul's going to stand before Bernice and Agrippa. And most times we read that as husband and wife. But they're actually brother and sister. But there is also enough evidence that there was some, I mean, they kind of acted like husband and wife. This is the family that Felix is part of, right? They're rulers. And if you know anything about, well, okay, I'll just say it this way. You probably can make the connection. If you know anything about people who are in power, they often do everything they can to stay in power, and they'll do whatever they want to because they think they can. This is why in this kind of mess that when Paul begins to talk about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, that Felix starts to do what? Yeah, this is getting a little uncomfortable. By the way, if you, if you were checked out now, if you were sleeping that last little bit, you can wake up now. Okay, time to wake up. Back in the sermon now. He begins to tremble because he realizes that I'm not where I should be. Now, let me track you back a little bit in the, in the book of Acts again. There's this fantastic scene, wonderful story, where Peter's in prison, right? He's, I'm sorry, Paul is in prison, and he's in Philippi. Remember the story of where Paul's in prison in Philippi? And something happens with that. There's an earthquake, and there's, you know, all the chains fall off, and the jailer wakes up, and he thinks everyone is gone, so he's about to kill himself. Paul says, wait a minute, don't do that. And that text right there is the same phrase used because the jailer comes to Paul and he's trembling. He's alarmed. It's the exact same word. And he says, what should I do? Now, that story and the story today are overlaid at that point. They're parallel up until the point we're at because it's at that point the stories diverge, right? Because Paul tells the Philippian jailer, believe in Jesus Christ, get baptized, you'll be saved. And he does that. Him and his household, they take all of them back, and they, 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 they dress their wounds, they take care of them, all the other stuff. Felix is alarmed. He's shaking. But what does he do? Does he say, what should I do, Paul? Tell me how to be saved. He says this. Uh, go away right now. Maybe when the time is right, when I have an opportunity, I'm going to summon you again. In other words, today we would say, don't call me, I'll call you. Right? Hold your arm's length. Uh, why don't you leave? For, I don't want to talk about this anymore. Just leave. The time's not right right now. Have you ever heard someone say that before, by the way? Maybe particularly about Jesus? Uh, the time's not right right now. Have you ever said that about Jesus? Are you saying that right now about Jesus? about something God wants to do in your life? Uh, go away for right now. Maybe another opportunity. I'll, I'll check back in with you when, 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 when my life is a little more ready for it. I have no doubt that Paul probably thought to himself, Felix, if the time is not right right now, when is it going to be right? It's the question I'm thinking for you this morning if you're in that place where the time is not quite right yet. You know, Scripture says this. Isaiah said this long before Jesus even walked the earth. He said, seek the Lord while he may be found. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him when he's near. 
Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. It's like God himself would come to you and say, listen, I'm here now. I'm close by now. It doesn't matter what you've, doesn't matter what's back there. Come, let's, let's, let, let's figure out to change what was unrighteous to be righteous now. Come back and return to me. I'm compassionate. I will abundantly pardon if you will come and seek me, if you will call out to me, if you'll cry out to me. In fact, it's like God does that exactly because Isaiah said those, not those exact words, but pretty close. Chapter 1, verse 18, he says this. This is God speaking to us now. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If the time isn't right now, when will it ever be? Listen, the word is very clear. In fact, it's probably the line I heard more often than any other time when I was in an evangelistic kind of service. Today is the day of salvation. Today, when you hear his voice, don't harden your heart as he did in the days of old, in the days of testing. Felix was at the point of making a decision, just like the Philippian jailer had been. They were both trembling at the word. They were both trembling at realizing what their outcome was going to be. They were both aware at that very moment, aware that something had to change. One responded one way, and the other said, go away for right now. Maybe when the opportunity comes. Maybe then. I want you to see, this is why Paul exactly was excited about these opportunities, because this is exactly what the Holy Spirit does. Jesus said, by the way, he said, I'm going to leave, but when I leave, God is going to send the Holy Spirit down, and here are some things he's going to do. Among that, John chapter 16, verse 8, when he comes, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world. Notice this. He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. What did Paul talk to Felix about? Righteousness and self-control, which the lack of which is sin and the coming judgment. He was working tandem, hand in hand with the Holy Spirit. By the way, little aside, we, you and I, should get super, super, super excited about the fact that we can do exactly what Paul was doing. That we can work hand in hand with the Holy Spirit. That we can do and help the Holy Spirit accomplish a task that he came to do. That is amazing, by the way, because that's God. It's him who calls hearts and softens them and brings them to the, to the threshold where they're ready to make a decision and, in fact, helps them do that. It's him, and you and I can be witness of that. You know, the funny thing is, you and I are most often just scared and we don't want to do it and we shy away from it. We don't want to be involved. And instead, it's one of the most incredible things we can get to do, to walk alongside the Holy Spirit as he brings someone to Christ. It's exactly what the Holy Spirit does. When he comes, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of the judgment. But, Felix, we see this war waging, right? He's brought right to the edge. And he says, no, no, not yet. We know the war was waging because we know his flesh was also bringing ulterior motives, right? Because look at the next line that we haven't covered yet. At the same time, it says, Felix was hoping that Paul would give him some money, would bribe him. It's almost as if we kind of get the sense that Felix says, I know you're innocent, but if you would cough up a little money, I'd let you go. Once again, remind you, why do you think Paul began to talk to him about righteousness, about ruling justly, about self-control, about the coming judgment? You see, in fact, what Felix hoped would happen is the longer I keep you, the more likely you're ready to give me money. Paul said, it's going to go the opposite. The longer you keep me, the more I'm going to talk to you about how you are going to face the music someday. 
Well, I'm going to come to the last line of the text because we're caught in this struggle. You know, it's maddening when they know he's innocent and they don't let him go. It's also maddening, isn't it, when you see the Holy Spirit lead someone right to the point where they're right on the threshold of saying yes to Jesus and they say, ah, go away some other time. And I want to read the last line to help us put some things in context. By the way, look at that line. But just, just, just make sure you're reading it. How many times do you and I read through Scripture, especially these kind of things in the book of Acts or anywhere, and we assume things are just like happening, right? Like, you know, Paul went to Jerusalem. They arrested him. Within seven days, he went to Caesarea. He had a trial. They didn't keep him. He, the next guy came in. Then the next guy came in. The next guy came in. You ever wonder, like, you know, why was it that, you know, the same guys or different guys were involved? Why didn't the same guys just hang? It's because, look at this. Two years passed. Two years of Felix coming to him, just a little bit at a time, and hoping he's going to give him money, hearing more, and still saying, no, no. Do you ever wonder, according to our conversation in our Sunday school class this morning, those of you who are part of that class, salt and light, pay attention. You ever wonder if Paul ever got to the point where he said, you know, I've told you a hundred times, Felix. I'm just going to stop telling you. But did he? I mean, we obviously don't have the, I can't tell you right from the text, but I think we know Paul well enough to know that he didn't. For two years, this went on. And as Felix was on his way out, a cloud hanging over his head, by the way, history would tell us, nobody really likes him that much. He's messed up a whole lot of things. That's why he's being replaced, by the way. That's what the phrase is used is that, is that Festus comes into his office, which means he took over. As he's on his way out, hoping to curry some favor back so that people will speak, some, some people will speak kindly of him, he says, you know what? The Jews really want Paul to you know, be kept out of the picture, so I'm going to keep him in prison. And he's going to hand Paul down to the next person who, again, has no clue why Paul is even in prison. That's where we're going to go. And you might be thinking at the end of the text, here we have people that know he's innocent and refuse to let him go. And then you might think, well, it's because God wants to win souls to him. And so he brings Felix to the edge of a confession of faith in Christ. And then he says, no. Why? What is happening? I would like to remind you, God came to Paul as this was happening in Acts chapter 23, verse 11. And he says this. Take heart, Paul. Be encouraged. Just as you have testified about the facts in Jerusalem, so you must also testify. So you must testify also in Rome. You see, God had this in hand. God knew where this was going to go. God, in fact, is directing us where this is going to go. And over and over and over again in the book of Acts, we've seen that to be true. We've seen God's sovereign hand upon Paul and upon all the characters in the story to say, this is where we're going. You see, it's one thing. A couple of weeks ago when I did this text and I was encouraging you and saying, hey, brothers and sisters, take heart. It's one thing to hear it. And probably every one of us thought, take heart. God is going to come through in the next week probably or maybe the next couple of weeks, maybe month at the most. And my situation is going to change. How about take heart? Two years later, you're still in custody, Paul. You're still sitting in Caesarea. But take heart. No. No, because I've said it's going to happen, God says. Take heart. Just like you have testified to me in Jerusalem, you will testify for, for me in Rome. 
It's one of those places where I think we have to acknowledge, oh, we, change that word just a bit, but oh, we of little faith. Who we think that when our encouragement, when God comes to encourage us, that means surely in the next week or two, it's going to be wrapped up and all, all be changed and all be different. I know we have people here who have watched children go through things that they don't want them to go through, who have gone wayward and said, I don't know where they're going to be who have watched family members make mistakes, who have maybe made them themselves, who have maybe felt like they're paying for their mistakes that they've made for a long time. You see, when the God comes to us and says, take heart, be encouraged, he's not telling us that means in the next couple of days, I'm just gonna switch it all around. He's saying, I want you to have a long view of things. I want you to think future and not just a year future even. Not just two years future, maybe even. I want you to think longer than that. If necessary, I want you to think like maybe thousand year future. <laughs> How often do you reorient your life by the thousand year future? May I remind you that the Holy Spirit's work and what Paul helped him do was to talk about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. The fact that the thousand year future for all of us is going to contain this place where we cannot escape the judgment throne of Christ. I find it interesting. I find it interesting in modern church, especially in the U.S. here, we have largely tried to write away judgment. We've largely tried to wipe away the unfortunate. That's why, that's why there's, people don't want to talk about hell and they want to believe, even Christians want to say, Christians want to say that there's no hell. I find it interesting that by the God's own text, he says, that is the very thing the Holy Spirit will do, is to convict you based upon the fact that there's a judgment coming. I believe it would be in the absolute most unloving thing I could do to you to not tell you about the coming judgment, to not let you know that there's a time coming where you will answer for everything that you have done, and you will be judged by the most fair, just, equitable person that is God that ever is or ever will be. And it will be the right judgment. And you will know it on that day, by the way. You will know it's the right judgment. It's why we cannot ever back away from knowing and from saying that there's only one way. There's only one way you're gonna stand innocent before that judge someday. And that's with the blood of Jesus Christ. That's by having placed your faith in what God has already done in Jesus to say, that is my only hope. If you have not done that, we can use today's text to say, today is the time. Don't wait. Don't push it off and say, come back some other time until there's an opportune time. I'm going to close today by reading. It's a little bit lengthier. I apologize for that, except I don't apologize for reading Scripture because it's the words we need, and these words just apply, so I'm going to read them to us. These Paul's words to the Corinthians. It's his second letter, and I want to read these, and if you want to follow along, you can, because I'm going to read a, a number of verses, but it's where we want to close, because I want us to see the second Corinthians chapter 5. I'm going to start reading in verse 14 and go on through a bit of chapter 6, but I want us to see a couple of things. One, I want us to see how what is happening to Paul and what Paul is doing is backed up or what he's going to say is backed up in what he's doing. Maybe I should say it that way. But he's going to write about what's, what he's experiencing. But I also want us to see how we fit in the story, both on the needing to receive 
the salvation of the Lord Jesus Christ side, as well as being an ambassador for Christ, being the one who then testifies to others about this. Verse 14, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul is writing, For the love of Christ controls us. It compels us, it says. It controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but live for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, he says, this is why he can do the things he can do, by the way, standing in front of the most horrible people that married uh, people they shouldn't have married and were involved in family situations they should have been involved in. But from now on, he says, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and then gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ God, I'm sorry, that is in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, he says in verse 20, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you. Hear the cry of Paul. Hear my cry this morning. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Don't make his sacrifice be in vain. That's my, I should have told you, I'm stepping out of the text. That's my, uh, my statement on that. That's not in the text there. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with him, then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time, I listened to you. And in a day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. By the way, the implication to that is that there is a time coming while it will no longer be the favorable time. We can say on a general sense that for all of us, that will be when Christ returns. But we can say in a much more specific sense for every one of us that that will happen to us also if we happen to pass away or die before Christ returns. And the reality is none of us knows when we're going to die. Which is to say it could be today, tomorrow, it could be 50 years from now. But we don't know. So when there's an implication that says today is the day of favor, today you can call out, the implication is tomorrow you may not be able to. I would also tell you on top of that, from spiritual principles represented in scripture, that if you continue to say no to him, you will cease to hear his voice. So not even just in the grand sense that you may die tomorrow and not be able to say, have the opportunity, you may also have been saying no to him for so long that eventually you no longer hear the Holy Spirit say, today's the day. That is a place you don't want to be. That is a place I don't want you to be. Verse three. We put no obstacle, this is Paul speaking, we put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance, in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger. Do you hear what Paul is going through to make sure people know about Jesus? Do you see why he doesn't say, this is such a hardship, it's so unfair that I'm still in chains when I shouldn't be? He says, I put no obstacle in anyone's way. 
Verse 6, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Really to anyone he spoke to, he spoke freely. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In other words, Paul is saying, it's, it's not because of us that you're not following Jesus if you're not. But you are restricted by your own affections. In return, I speak as, ch- as to children, widen your hearts also. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word. Your word is so precious to us. It, it illuminates, it reminds us, it tells us all those things we need to know. It put it in writing. God, by your grace, how amazing it is by your grace that you put it into writing. We don't have to wonder, did, I, did, did, did you say it to me? Is it there? Did I, did I feel that? Did I think that up myself? It's there in writing. There's so much in the text today. There's so much in the text we read at the end. But God, I want to be faithful to what your heart's cry always is, and that is to make sure we are right with you. So Father, I to this morning just want to give a chance, I want to pause for a moment, that if you're doing business in anyone's heart, to allow them to respond. And brothers and sisters, you sitting here, you have your eyes closed, but I hope your mind is fully engaged. I'm going to give that invitation to you. I don't know where you're at. I don't know whether you've said yes to Jesus already or not, but if you have not ever, today is the day to do it. If you are in the place where this morning as we speak about being right, as we speak about self-control, as you speak about the coming judgment, that you are left trembling, that you are left wondering, that you are left thinking, I'm not sure, I invite you to make it sure this morning. There's any number of ways you can do that, but what must be central is for you to cry out to Jesus, for you to say to the Lord Jesus Christ, I receive what you have done on my behalf. I believe that is everything and the only thing I need to be made right with God. Please help me to do better to honor you. I repent of those things that I have done in in error. I turn away from them. I agree with you, Father God, that they are wrong, and I turn away from them. Thank you for justifying me. Thank you for making it as if I had not sinned when I received what Jesus has done. But help me now to grow in my righteousness, to grow in my holiness, to become more like you, Jesus. Again, if if those are the words you want to say this morning, I beg of you to say them. You know, if you want to come up front, I'm perfectly fine with that. If you want to walk out the back door, I'm perfectly fine with that, if that's what's happening. If you want to stand up, if you want to go to your knees, it's not about where you were at. I use the words of Paul from the text we read at the end. We implore you, I implore you, on behalf of Christ, become reconciled to God. Father, perhaps the lesson for many of us this morning is even simply just the fact that we get wrapped up when things aren't going our way and we think it's been a long time and we think we just keep getting beaten down to be 
recognizing that you come to us and you ask us to take courage to be encouraged. You ask us to take a long view. You ask us to recognize that you are sovereign and in control of things and to be okay with that. To say, yes, God, I will tuck in yet longer. I will take every opportunity I have in the place and the time that I have right now to be a witness for you, to be an ambassador for Christ, to be helping shed the light, to work in tandem with the Holy Spirit, to shed the light into places where it hasn't been before. That is to say, I'm going to stop being a baby about my circumstances that are less than perfect, and I'm going to become overjoyed at working with the Holy Spirit. Oh, God, I need, we need to have our minds and perspectives altered about this. Thank you, Father. God, I know that there's plenty of ways that you were speaking to us that I have not made mention of, and that's because I'm not thinking of them. I don't need to think of them. You're the one that speaks into our hearts. You get all the glory this way, God. You get all the benefit. You get all the praise. You get all the honor because it is all due to you. Whatever good things have happened this morning, God, it's because of you and the work of your Holy Spirit, the power of your word, and the magnificence of what Jesus Christ has done. We give you all that glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't you stand with me this morning? We're going to... Uh, say our closing prayer, and this morning with our closing prayer will also be uh, the uh, prayer for the noon meal. Again, you're invited and hope you're going to stay with us. God, thank you so much. We receive your Holy Spirit. We, in fact, want to give him lordship over us so that you may be in charge of us. That is the way that we walk rightly before you. As we uh, do that, we, we want to begin that right up front here. We ask for your blessing of the food. Thank you for the many hands that prepared it. Uh, the, I'm sure it's going to be delicious for us. We receive every good and perfect thing from you. But may that lordship of Jesus Christ be in effect as we have fellowship that our conversation may honor you. Our thoughts, our, our words, our actions, our attitudes may, may honor you. And we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to go in peace.